Inventivity. What does it mean? The state of being inventive, creating or designing new things or thoughts. Hello, I'm Richard Miles. Welcome to the Inventivity Pod. Join us as we speak to inventors, entrepreneurs, and visionaries who are using inventivity to change the world. They will bring us alongside their journey as they share their personal stories from start to finish, including the triumphs, the failures, and everything in between. Hi, I'm Richard Miles, and welcome to our series exploring the animal health industry. A look at what it is, who's involved, and what the future is going to look like thanks to innovators and their inventivity. For this limited series, we're able to talk to subject matter experts who are excited to give our audience a look into the growing and impressive animal health industry and inventors who are utilizing their inventivity to help animals. My guest today is Jordan Sand. Jordan is the co-founder and CEO of Coldwater Technologies, the makers of Happy Scratch. He earned his undergraduate degree in microbiology and biotechnology from North Dakota State University got his PhD in molecular and environmental toxicology from the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and did his postdoc studies at the University of Wisconsin's Department of Animal Science. Jordan has 19 peer-reviewed publications and is the recipient of multiple awards, including the Wisconsin Alumni Research Foundation Innovation Award, and recently was a finalist in the 2023 Cade Prize. Welcome to the show, Jordan. Uh, Thanks for having me, Richard. So let's let's dive right in and start by talking about Happy Scratch, and then we'll circle back and start talking about you and, and your development uh, into the entrepreneurial world. But first of all, this was your entry into the art prize competition. I remember the judges being really uh, excited by it and impressed by it. So why don't you tell our audience, what does it do? And then how did you think about it? So Happy Scratch is essentially a pet supplement where we're looking to help animals that have a dermatitis condition, itchy skin. The way this came about was when I was a postdoc at UW-Madison, we were looking to raise money for a new building. And so the state supplied about half the funding, and the other half was supposed to be raised by the department. And so the way we decided to do that was to look into uh, low-value products from the slaughter industry and try to find high-value uses for them. So what our lab looked into was the intestinal mucosa from pigs. Now, that was being collected at the time, and it still is. It's used uh, for heparin, uh, the blood thinner, but we thought we could find a higher value use for the producers, where if we just took it, pasteurized it, and dried it, there's a lot of bioactive materials within there that should help animal conditions. So we went through and fed it to nearly every animal under the sun we could find, uh, chickens, cows, pigs, sheep. And we also had a model for dermatitis in mice. And so when we put this into the diet for mice, this spray-dried powder, we found that a lot of animals didn't get dermatitis, and some of the ones that had dermatitis actually uh, reversed the condition. So we went and fed it in a few more studies and purified out uh, what we thought would be the active ingredient, which is part of the immune system called immunoglobulin A or IgA and found that that was in fact the active ingredient. And then we fed it to uh, some beagles for a safety study to ensure that there wasn't any unknown issues by feeding it to dogs and found that it worked great. And in fact, in that study, we found that we reduced some dermatitis these pets were having in between their feet. So we were very happy about that and moved on and did uh, a study with UW-Madison's veterinary hospital and found that we reduced dermatitis in dogs where no other, even pharmaceutical intervention worked. 
So we've come about this. This is about five years in the making. I had to take some time off in between discovering this and starting Cold Water Technologies because I had started a separate company in the interim called Abbey Discovery, which was commercializing a different one of the uh, many patents that I filed while I was a postdoc. That's a fascinating journey, Jordan. And if, if I understand correctly, when you were you started to harvest the, the pig mucosa, right? When you started, you're, you're just assuming there would be some beneficial effect, but you weren't sure where or what. Is that correct? Uh, that's correct. And in fact, when we when we went to the, the mice that had dermatitis and saw positive effects, we, of course, like every good researcher, raced to the literature to find out why it worked and uh, come to find out there's a condition in humans and actually a lot of dogs called selective IgA deficiency. It can be in as many as one in 200 humans where you don't make enough IgA, this immunoglobulin A that we're harvesting from these pigs. And what you find is people and dogs that have this condition are much more likely to have dermatitis, to have uh, reoccurring gut infections. And, and really, it, it was a nice pathway for us to, to say, hey, this is why it works. You know, we weren't setting out to find that out, but it was one of the things that we did, we did notice. That's a great paradigm and illustration of what happens, obviously, to a lot of inventors and entrepreneurs. You you end up going with the thing that you weren't maybe looking for, but it's the thing that worked. So it's a no, no better way of illustrating that than the story. Switching tracks a little bit. So you did your PhD in molecular environmental toxicology, and you originally started doing skin cancer research, right? Yeah, that's correct. But you found cancer research wasn't really for you. So why not? What turned you away from cancer research? You know, this might turn into my own little treatise. I have some some issues about funding and how funding comes to, to certain labs. So when I was doing my graduate work, uh, we were working with a protein called protein kinase C epsilon. And it was mainly being expressed in the skin of mice, these transgenic mice. Well, about halfway through, I found out that that particular protein had absolutely nothing to do with human cancers, especially skin cancer. And the fact that they had enormous amounts of funding to do work that I found not representative of the human condition was was pretty demoralizing. Mm -hmm. And at that point was where I really almost swore off working with model species. So if I wanted to fix cancer in humans, uh, I decided I was going to work with humans. But since that's a lot harder to do, I switched to animal sciences for two reasons. One, because I would work with the animal that I wanted to fix. And secondly, I, I grew up on a farm in, in North Dakota. And so it was much more suitable to my background. And so in that arena, we made great strides in trying to get rid of things like antibiotics and animal feed or fixing dermatitis in pets. We could go much, much quicker because we didn't have to try and translate it from a mouse to the animal we wanted to get to. We could just directly work with that animal. So I didn't like how indirect you had to be. And, you know, we've cured cancer in a mouse a hundred times over and it doesn't translate very well to humans. It didn't feel like representative. It didn't feel like we were making the progress we should. Interesting. So tell us about growing up on a farm in North Dakota. So at what point did you decide you did not want to go into farming? Well, that's that's a good question. So, you know, when I decided I was, um, I have an older brother and I just assumed he would farm. Okay. Um, both of my parents and uh, three out of four of my grandparents had college degrees. So we were going to, they at least had undergraduate degrees. So I was going to end up going to college. And so I went there. Actually, I should back up. 
when I was like 16 years old, our high school forced us to do science fair projects. And then we'd go and we'd actually compete with them. And I ended up going to uh, International Science and Engineering Fair in Philadelphia one year that was that project was then recognized by the MIT Lemelson folks. And they picked me to win their national award when I was 18. Wow. And so I ended up spending time at Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratories about about three weeks there, about a month there, right before I went to North Dakota State University. And the real funny part about it, and I still laugh about it, was that MIT asked me to apply to go to, to, go to school there. And then they told me no. okay (laughs) so that's a weird i'd never forgiven him uh no (laughs) let it go jordan funny um but yeah so i was i figured i was good at the science i was good at talking to people about it i was creative enough to find new ways to go to look at old problems and so that's why i decided to go to north dakota state university and get degrees i was interested in microbiology and then just kind of kept going you know it was something i was good at and i just kept doing it so jordan tell me this do you, do you remember i mean early on say uh as, as a young kid do you remember was there a particular teacher or, or maybe with one of your parents that that you started thinking or kind of looking at animals in a different light you know they're not just big creatures or they're, they're things that have their own health and things that make them better or things that make them worse did you have sort of like an epiphany at some point or did it just sort of um as you grew a little bit older and understood a little bit more about basic science that you it dawned on you that you know animals could could be helped for instance so we, when i was growing up we did raise some pigs and i found i hated them they were uh they were ornery and they were mean <laughs> and they always got out of their pet yeah i was not a huge fan of that but it really came later the guy i postdoc with uh his name is professor mark cook unfortunately he's uh he's passed on in the last few years but i'm oh, sorry to hear that yeah me too he was it was working with him that really i i enjoyed he was i wanted to go work for him because he was the number three earner in patent royalties from the wisconsin alumni research foundation he's very inventive he'd started companies before i knew by the time I was done with graduate school, that's what I wanted to do. He was working with chickens and I said, okay, let's work with chickens. And that's kind of where it all, all started really. And like I said before, it was, I really wanted to get away from model systems and I wanted to work directly with the animals I wanted to fix. So Jordan, this is your, your second company, right? You founded one about 10 years ago. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, about 10 years ago. Did you get the bug from Mark Cook? I mean, you said he had a bunch of patents and he was sort of the the, the top there, University of Wisconsin, did, was he the one that sort of said, hey, you know, you can do, in addition to doing good science, good research, you can actually get commercial success out of this. Is, is he the one that sort of taught you the ropes of what that looks like? Yeah, he did. He not only taught me, he taught most of the department the ropes of how to do that. I mean, I always admired and really came to embrace, you know, no matter how great your science is, if someone can't buy it and use it, it's not particularly useful. Yeah. You know, if you can sit in a lab and make these great breakthroughs, but no company will pick it up if you don't patent it. Because if they can't protect it, they're not going to invest in it. And if they don't invest in it, they're not going to make a product. If you don't have a product and nobody can buy it, it doesn't matter how awesome it is. It just doesn't. And so looking at that, that's where I really wanted to start my own company. But really, you know, grow up, growing up on a farm was the same thing. It's its own small company, realistically. And so that's something I was always interested in. But now I had the, the science background to start something new. There seemed to me you know, a fair amount of similarities between doing research and, and starting a business, right? Because both of them are, are about problem solving. You make certain assumptions 
And then you got to test those assumptions. And sometimes your assumptions were correct and sometimes they're wrong. And you got to figure out what went wrong and fix them. How would you compare the two disciplines? Because the thing about inventors, particularly research inventors, you, you get to do both sort of at the same time, right? You've got to do the science part and the research part. And that has sort of its own protocols. And But then the entrepreneurial part, it's a little bit like the Wild West at certain times, right? You just got to figure stuff out on the fly. And there's no one really there to say, well, in this particular instance, you do X, Y, or Z because like nobody's done it before. So tell us what that experience is like sort of wearing those two hats. The first thing I'll say is I haven't done a whole bunch of science recently because there's so much of my time is spent doing the parts of the, the other parts of the business. They just are. And they're going to be, you know, marketing, making sure you can, you make the product production, making sure you deal with city inspectors, you know, found myself a red tag today, you know, dealing with a lot of things that you, no one teaches you about in, in the science realm. And, and it is, it's like anything else. A lot of times nobody has a better answer than your best guess. You're going to reach out, do your best. If it doesn't work, back up, do it again. And that's a lot like trying to, to discover new products. You'll only ever hear about the two or three successes. You won't hear about the 500 failures. That's not something anyone talks about. And I don't know, in my own opinion, I think there should be some way for scientists, at least, to publish the failures, mm -hmm. the things that didn't work, because that way we don't have to go down those negative rabbit holes again and again and again, just in different places. A lot of people I know have talked about doing something like that, but I don't really know how the mechanism would be for that. And I think the same thing you can kind of get from entrepreneurs, especially failed entrepreneurs or people you can talk to and they'll say, hey, this didn't work and this is why, and this is how we screwed it up. And in fact, my previous company, Abbey Discovery, I, I learned a lot from that one. So a little background on that particular company, it was another one of the inventions that I had while I was working with Mark. What it was, was a new way to feed farm animals without the need for antibiotics. So we put this in the feed, it was made in egg antibodies, animals would eat it and they wouldn't need, they wouldn't need any drugs. And the product itself worked great, but I don't know that we did the business the best. We didn't start with the right people. We spent too much money. We had too much staff. We went after the wrong customers. In my opinion, we partnered with the wrong partner, you know, and at the time it was the right thing to do. And yeah. in hindsight, it was the wrong thing to do, you know, and there's no way to know until you're doing, you know, you're eight years out looking back going, man, that wasn't right. I wish there was like an easier way to do it, but I don't know if there is. I was about to say that in hindsight, you realize your mistake. But at, at the moment that you made the decision, right, there's it's not like there's a fork in a path that says right way, wrong way. <laughs> you just kind of got to figure it out based mm -hmm. on your information. You have obviously since entering our prize competition, you've made progress. Uh, we're chatting earlier. You either have or you're about to close a deal on getting a manufacturing facility. And then you'll probably start hiring soon. Sort of tell us where the company's at and, and what you think the next, say, 12 months is going to look like for you. Before I did too much math, I thought I could hire most of the manufacturing out. It doesn't look like I can. So I've actually had to get my all of my own manufacturing equipment and at, at a fairly small scale. So I secured a facility in Middleton, Wisconsin. I ordered a dryer, which is now here. I have the ability to pasteurize and I'll have the ability to package. So we're going to keep it all in-house, do it here today. Hopefully I'll hear from my receiving facility within the next couple hours that they receive the first shipment of our raw material. And then we will uh, start manufacturing probably later this week, get things pasteurized, get it dried. And if I can make the packager work worth a darn, which is another one of the fun things we do as an entrepreneur is fight with equipment. 
Um, once I get that to work right, we'll probably have stuff that will be ready for people who pre-order. So we have about 40 or 50 people that are pre-ordered and, and others that are waiting till we have products. So we're, we're pretty excited about that and, you know, thanking all of our customers who've already pre-ordered uh, with us. Wow. So the, you really are in the thick of it here. Tell us a little bit about uh, financing, right? That's always usually a tough nut to crack for early stage inventors is uh, even if the idea, as you said, is a great idea and it has a lot of promise, somebody's got to be the first one in the pool in terms of either lending or investing money. How has that been for you? Where did you start? Was it just friends and family? Or do you have now, you know, uh, serious investors looking at you? Since this is my second go around, I, I learned a lot. And a lot of people that I've known for a number of years have gotten into doing some institutional investing. And so the first round of stuff was basically from my own bank account. I think I spent probably 15, 20,000 bucks getting everything up and, and going. And then we got our first uh, investor in June of this year. It was a half a million dollar investment. And so we're all set up and ready to go with any luck. If sales pick up, you know, maybe we don't need another one. That would be ideal for me because who wants to sign off any more of your company to somebody else? But it's unlikely that that will be true. And so I've been talking with the second stage investor and have, you know, already have for probably six months now. These are people that I've known for, you know, eight to 10 years. Like anything else, it's all about relationships and finding the people that have that, knowing them for a long time and having them see you personally fulfill on promises. Because most of these places are going to get 1,200 people that apply for funding every year and maybe five will get money. Mm -hmm. So the only way to really separate yourself out is to have those long-term relationships, to know these people and have known them for quite a long time in order to really get that sort of institutional investment. If you're talking about your friends, your family, hopefully they don't turn you down. But when it comes to getting institutional investment, it just takes a long time. Yeah. And you yeah. have to know people. Like, I wish there was a, a more of a silver bullet, but, you know, for people looking to try and do this, my advice to them would be to go to every conference you can, talk to people, get to know them, get to know what their investing strategy is, understand their risk tolerance and what you need to have in order for them to even give you a look and then keep at it. You know, there's no silver bullet to this. And, and the quotation I've always liked ends with determination will solve all of the world's problems and always has. And I forget which U.S. president said it, but I have it hanging over my uh, my bedroom door because that's one I, I really I really believe in. Consumer spending on pets has risen, you know, astronomically in the last few years, something like $30 billion in the last few years. Have you noticed, has that changed potential investors, their outlook on something like this or not at all? Are you hope to be part of that market of the sort of consumers as I'm willing to spend a lot more on my pet than I used to? Yeah, the pandemic really helped me out. Let's put it that way. Everybody got a pet and that's like an eight to 10 year commitment. When you talk about dermatitis, the numbers I have are in dogs only, but I know cats get it too. That ends up being about a $2 billion a year market worldwide. Three quarters of that's in the U.S. So it's about $1.75, $1.5 billion. And, and that uh, really translates to about 10% of every dog in the United States gets dermatitis. It's, it's a very large market. And since a lot of people got a, a fur baby, I guess, for lack of a, a better term, over the uh, over the pandemic, there's just a lot more out there for us. And hopefully we'll, you know, it is a fast growing market. As, as far as uh, investors in, where I'm at, there's not a ton, especially mm -hmm. in pets. The people we have targeted, the first one was an early stage group 
that it really focuses on essentially seed round investment. The second investor we have targeted is someone who has access to some of my raw material. So they have a vested interest in me working as well. Those tend to be the best investors because they want me to buy their stuff and I need it. Uh, the nice part for me is that because of the pandemic, a lot of elective surgeries didn't happen. And so what that means for these people that are serving the heparin market is that there's two, two and a half years worth of heparin that wasn't used, but it's finished on a shelf. So a lot of the supply contracts for the pork people kind of dried up. Mm -hmm. And so right now they're looking for a place to sell it to. And so that's very good for me. But, you know, that's why, uh, you know, I have a strategy for targeting who I'm targeting and why. You have to have the why. And in, in, like I say, it usually helps out if you if you align very well with what they need. And what is the current standard of care for a, a pet with a severe dermatitis? I mean, they, you got to go to the vet and get shots or what, what do they do to treat that? So there's a few options. The front line used to be giving your pet steroids. The problem with giving your pet steroids, while they're very cheap, typically what happens is the dog eats more and they drink more water. And because of that, while you're off at work, they can tend to lose control of their, their bowels and now all of a sudden you have pee and poop all over your house and you may still have an itchy pet. So that has changed recently to a couple of drugs, neither blockbuster drugs, which is a pill that you get your pet to take every day. And the second one, which is a shot that you have to go into the veterinarian and get a shot once a month. These tend to be very expensive. So when you start looking at it in terms of dollars a day, and we've really targeted ours to be about a dollar. So about, about $30 a month uh, will work as a, as a subscription service you sign up on our website, we'll just start delivering it to you. And hopefully without the side effects as well, right? So hopefully... there, As far as we can tell, there weren't side effects. And the, uh, the, only, the only side effect we found is that because of where it comes from and how dogs really like stinky things, they really loved it. In fact, the people we first had spray dry it <laughs> talked about how they would come home and the pets would be licking their pants. <laughs> they would go completely insane for it. We were doing beta testing. People talked about having to lock this stuff into drawers. Uh, one cat went through four plastic bags to get to it and was eating oh it my and just ripped through them to get to uh -huh. it. It seems to be highly palatable. You know, and if someone says, oh, have you done palatability studies? The answer is no. But if dogs and cats will lick pants for something yeah. like that, we feel like it's pretty palatable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can already see the commercials coming. Jordan, one last thing. We always like to ask inventors like yourself who's sort of a, a little bit down the road in terms of developing their product. If you had met you, your 20-year-old version of you, he comes along and says, hey, I've got this great idea. I, I think it's make a lot of money. I want to take it to market. Are there already a short list or a long list of things you'd say, well, definitely do this and definitely don't do that? Uh, what, what do you tell uh, sort of younger researchers who want to maybe follow in your footsteps? So the first thing I would tell them is well, some of the things I've already talked about, like it's all great to have great science, but having a product for somebody to buy can really actually change society. The second thing I would tell them is things like entrepreneurial boot camps are a good thing. Understanding your market, talking to people who are going to buy it, understanding the needs of those people. So for example, in, in, in our case, I don't know of anyone who wants to give a dog a bath which you can have shampoos for, for dermatitis. I don't know anyone who wants to do that. I don't know anyone who wants to give their dog a pill every day. Like that's such a pain to get a dog to take a pill. So you start looking at where are the real pain points for people. So if I can get them a great tasting powder that can do something similar to these pills, of course they would switch. 
And now I've lowered the barrier of entry. Hey, my cost is lower. Hey, we are not a pharmaceutical. We're a nutraceutical. We're just trying to lower that bar to get people to at least try our stuff. So it's all about finding those pain points and then lowering the barriers for your own entry. How can I make it easy for you to use my stuff? And that's really how I look at it. That's what I would tell myself there. The other thing I would say is find someone who's experienced because there's nothing in a book that can help you as much as someone who said, yeah, I did all that and here's where it screwed up. Or don't work with that person because the other thing you'll find is there's a lot of people out there who want to glom on to what you're doing and they may not be helpful at all. In fact, some people are looking, you know, for an easy ride from you. And then the the final thing I would say is be very good with relationships with people. It always comes down when it comes to funding or it comes to finding the right marketer or whoever. It all comes down to personal relationships. It just does. And trust your instincts. I would say on on my my last company, I was I may not have been forceful enough in some of the things that I thought I was I was right on. And I, I think that was not the best way to go. So like I said, experience helps, but you know, how do you get experience by making bad choices? So yeah. <laughs> you know, that's, there's no substitute for your own bad choices, I guess. Right. Right. <laughs> but yeah, those are some of the things that I would certainly focus on, but it's almost like any other profession you want to do, you know, understand the people that are in that profession, talk to them, try to get experience from people who have lived it. And then go out and try it yourself. Excellent advice, Jordan. Uh, I actually meant there is one last question, probably the most important one of the interview. Are you a dog person or a cat person? I have outdoor cats because my wife won't let me have indoor dogs. <laughs> so my my boys, my two my two boys want a dog inside, and I want a dog inside, but my wife isn't going to let us do that. So, <laughs> so you're, I, like, I like them both. But, but yeah, <laughs> so you're, you're a split family, mixed marriage, right? So, <laughs> oh, it is, it very much is. <laughs> Jordan, great talking to you today. Mm-hmm. Uh, wish you all the success with Happy Scratch or mm-hmm. any other company you happen to develop along the way. Wish you the best. And when you're ringing the bell in the New York Stock Exchange, then we'll, we'll have you back on the show, or maybe even before that. <laughs> that sounds great, Richard. You can stand beside me while it goes ding a ling a ling. <laughs> exactly. Great talking to you, Jordan. The Inventivity Pod is produced by the Cade Museum for Creativity and Invention, located in Gainesville, Florida. Richard Miles and me, James DiVirgilio, are your podcast hosts. Podcasts are recorded at the Hartwood Soundstage in Gainesville and edited and mixed by Rob Rothschild. Be sure to subscribe to the Inventivity Pod wherever you get your podcast and leave a comment or review to let us know how we're doing. Until next time, be inventive.